RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. Uh, as today is 824, and you know we don't necessarily normally talk about the date, but 824 has some significance in L.A., a couple of years back, they had made 824 Kobe Bryant Day, and we're about seven months from Kobe Bryant's passing in that helicopter crash. So uh, today is 824 uh, Kobe Bryant Day, and uh, just wanted to take a moment to recognize that and you know, kind of tie into the show today. I had been asked about wrongful death in the state of Florida and how it works. Uh, there's been couple of news stories here in Florida and uh, some tied into the sports world. And we previously talked about Kobe Bryant and the helicopter crash. So want to get into that topic today, kind of a, a deep and heavy topic, but uh, we're going to look at it from the legal side. And as I've mentioned in the past, the legal side is, is sometimes difficult and we have to talk about difficult topics and that's what we're going to do today. Uh, but let's talk real briefly about our social media real quick. You can catch our social media at the law father. We actually just were able to secure uh, the law father for Instagram. Uh, we do have a, a trademark on that. So we were able to secure that for our use. Uh, so check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, as always, the show email address is lawfather at tampalawfather.com. Feel free to reach out to us on there. And as always, I use that email address just for the show and just for listener questions. Uh, or if you want to make a comment about the show, uh, you'd like to hear a particular topic, maybe not an actual question, but just want to know a little bit more about something, by all means, go ahead and reach out. I would love to hear from everybody who listens to the show. If you ever want to reach out to me by text or phone call, 855-LAW-FATHER, that's a good way to reach us. So uh, without further ado, let's kind of look into wrongful death, what it is, and the couple of cases that we're going to focus on as we uh, work our way through this. And uh, these are the more high profile type cases. There's going to be some other areas of law that we get into other than just wrongful death. Uh, so to highlight what we're going to be looking at here in Tampa, we have Bayshore Boulevard, which they bill as being the longest continuous sidewalk in the world. However, it uh, turns out that's not entirely true. It is the longest continuous sidewalk in the United States. However, uh, and I can't remember the country, but there is another country that has a longer continuous sidewalk. But be that as it may, it, it goes across and borders the bay in Tampa. And it, it kind of beautiful area, a lot of joggers, a lot of bikers, a lot of walkers, you name it, there's people out there. Uh, it's just basically a, a nice view to have a, a do a workout or, you know, just to enjoy the view and be outside and all that. Well, with all of that, it's a long stretch of road. There's two lanes on each side. There's a divided grass median in between, a raised grass median. So you have a curb and some grass and then another curb following the other side and very few stoplights. So uh, kind of a recipe there when you look at that for high speed traffic, even though the speed limit is uh, a lot lower than what cars do travel at. And if you look at some of the mechanics of road development and things like that, and, and we do that because we do personal injury, focusing more on car crashes, uh, looking at 
ways that people are slowed down on roads, uh, kind of similar to uh, Bayshore Boulevard. And you know, a couple of things that they look at are the lane width. Uh, lanes are typically 12 feet wide. Uh, sometimes if you're looking to control traffic, you might shorten or narrow those lanes down some. Sometimes they do things with medians to make it so that you feel like you have to go slower. Okay. And it's, it's really a mere uh, perception that makes you feel that way. Uh, obviously speed limits, but uh, the speed limits haven't seemed to work for us on Bayshore in Tampa. So uh, there was a, and, and quite frankly, I don't think any of those measures would have helped uh, the particular incident that we're going to talk about today. Now, there have been other high profile incidents uh, that have happened and, and fatalities that have happened on Bayshore Boulevard that have truly been because of speed and recklessness. There was a, a mother and uh, two guys that were racing. I believe they were teenagers. They were adults, but I believe they were teenagers racing on Bayshore Boulevard. And uh, I believe there was an, an incident with motorcyclists fairly recently here uh, where a gentleman was killed in that crash. But the one that I want to focus on today, uh, because there's a lot of legal issues and it ties into uh, one of the sports related ones that I want to talk about is there was a pool company who had let their driver drive the truck and it was I think around 11 a.m. and he was plastered drunk uh, and ran ran through the the raised median through the grass onto the sidewalk uh, hit a pedestrian and went through or partially through the wall that sits. There's a concrete wall that sits between the road and the bay. Uh, those of you not familiar with the area, there's probably 100, 150 feet of between grass and sidewalk between the edge of the road and the wall that takes you out to the bay. So that's what we're looking at. That's the setup there. So that's the one that we're going to talk about. Here's our tie-in today to sports. As always, the legal side and sports side really try to tie those things in and, and make it interesting here. So uh, as you may have heard recently, fairly recently, I think it's been a year and a half, maybe two years now, uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, their official name, uh, kind of a mouthful, but Tyler Skaggs, one of their pitchers, uh, had overdosed on, I believe it was a combination of fentanyl and oxycodone, uh, two really strong opiates. And uh, opiates are a... a category of drugs that are narcotics. Uh, they derive from the same material or the same substance that you would find in heroin. So that's kind of the, the type of drug that we're dealing with, but they are readily prescribed. Uh, they are used a lot of times fentanyl is used in hospital settings as, um, as a numbing agent. Okay. Uh, those of you who've had major procedures when they use a local anesthesia, meaning that just in one specific spot, a lot of times they use fentanyl. They may even use it sometimes to put you to sleep under what's called general anesthesia, but that's a highly controlled environment with professionals who that's what they do all day, every day. And even then there are inherent risks in that. Well, what happened with Tyler Skaggs was he was in his hotel room. Uh, the angels were on a road trip and he was found dead the next morning on an overdose of fentanyl and uh, oxycodone. If we look back, fentanyl is also what Michael Jackson OD'd on. So uh, kind of a long history with fentanyl. As I mentioned, very potent, very powerful drug. And you may say, hey, he was in his hotel room. He was doing his own thing. Why is that anybody's fault? 
why is it that somebody could potentially be responsible for that? So we're going to take a look at that aspect to it. So as always, I try to bring a tie-in to Florida here. Uh, I am a Florida attorney, and uh, I don't practice anywhere other than Florida. So one of the first things that we want to look at is the wrongful death statute. Now, every state, either they have a wrongful death statute or they don't. Uh, I know Florida does, because we're going to look at that here real quickly. Um, but like I said, this is this part of it is solely solely related to Florida, and it talks about what the survivor's rights are. Okay, now if you are a single individual and you don't have any family, then there is no mechanism for a wrongful death case. So just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, it, it sounds kind of weird, right? Because maybe somebody did truly do something wrong and really you truly should be able to recover something. But if there's nobody to recover it on your behalf, there's nothing there. And, and you may say, well, what if you had a will that named somebody a beneficiary, right? The, the recipient of whatever funds you had at the time of your death. Well, it, the wrongful death statute doesn't apply to that because the calculation comes down to the family relationship and what what you could do for it. So what we look at is, and I'm going to read the statute, then we'll break it down some, is that each survivor may recover the value of loss, support, and services from the date of the decedent's injury to his or her death with interest and future loss of support and services from the date of death and reduced to present value. Now, what does that mean? Right. What, what does any of that mean other than that the survivors may recover the value of loss, support and services? Well, what are loss, support and services? Basically, right. If you're a parent, what do you provide to, the, to your kids? Do you go out and play with them? Do you go out and you have to work three shifts to put food on the table? Or do you, you know, somewhere in the middle of all that, some combination of all those things? That's what that is. OK, so it doesn't the statute really doesn't care necessarily uh, if you have to go work three shifts and um, that is how you provide for your family and that is your support and services, okay? Or if you work a couple hours a week and go and run around and play the rest of the time, it all kind of fits into that same bucket, okay? And, and I don't think there's necessarily one that's a greater value than the other, okay? Where we can get into that are the lost wages, Okay, now you can recoup for the lost wages as a result of someone's death. And then so what we want to look at is if we take a, a jump here a little bit in the statute and we want to look at in computing the duration of future losses, the joint life expectancies of the survivor and the decedent and the period of minority in the case of healthy minor children may be considered. So that's what, what we're going to look at. In terms of how it's done, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we do look at the the lost wages and we look at the amount of the decedent's probable net income available for distribution to the particular survivor and the replacement value of the decedent's services to the survivor may be considered. So what we're talking about, who are the survivors here in this? Surviving spouse. Okay, so if you're married, your spouse is considered the survivor and minor children. So that is who is eligible under the wrongful death act. Okay. The wrongful death statute in the state of Florida differs slightly from probate or if you die intestate, which means without a will, there's a different calculation. Okay. It, it actually can look at 
brothers and sisters and if you have no brothers and sisters so no spouse no children no brothers and sisters and parents right you can actually there's a trickle down effect that hits all of those different individuals uh, i don't practice probate law so not all that up on the exact order that it goes in or how that all works but to hit on a couple things what is present value okay and you know we deal with this a lot in personal injury cases when we deal with future medical bills we're dealing with reducing these things to present value and what does that mean and how does it work well we have a dollar amount okay that we know that it's worth say a hundred thousand dollars but a hundred thousand dollars given the hundred thousand dollars today isn't the same as a hundred thousand dollars in 10 years because you could take that hundred thousand dollars today put it in an investment account make money on it and now that hundred thousand dollars 10 years from now is worth a whole lot more okay so basically you take whatever time you want the time period to end and you make that the end point okay and you then have to reduce the present day value of that so that if it is invested it equals that hundred thousand dollars okay really simplified version of it Really, how it happens in in practice and in real life, there are experts who do this, and we have to pay these experts a lot of money. Um, so they're really experts in their field, and we, you know, yes, we call them experts because uh, that's exactly what they are. So that's that's what it is. So in these cases, what we're looking at, what's the who's this? Who are the survivors, and who can benefit, or who is benefiting from the services that they're providing? Okay. Now, I don't know the family relationship for Tyler Skaggs or the gentleman that uh, was involved in the crash on Bayshore Boulevard, but that's what we would look at. Okay. Uh, and I believe actually in both cases, uh, they were fairly wealthy individuals. So you know, I, I think we'd see a decent amount of, of compensation in those cases because they would have a decent amount of net wealth and a decent ability to make money. I mean, when we're talking about uh, a major league pitcher, average major league pitcher salaries are a million plus. Okay, that's a significant amount. Now, it may not be sustained over 30 years, but hey, you know, a million over five, six years, that's that's a lot of money. A million for one year is a lot of money. But when we're talking about uh, a situation like this, we'd have to project out. So it becomes really subjective. Okay, so in that sense, and you know, for let's say our, our Bayshore Boulevard crash, the difference is is this individual was working. We'll call it a regular job for for lack of a, a better way to call it versus a a sports job, right? So it's more regular. So you know, okay, this person can work till age say 65 because they can just work until they want to retire that's the time that most people in that profession retire so therefore you have an easier way to find an end date okay when we're talking about a baseball player a football player uh, anybody that plays professional sports it's really subjective as to how long they're going to be around because injury could stop it your skill could fall off uh those of you wally pip back in the day just kind of couldn't figure out where to throw the ball. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's those things. So you just don't know. It's very, very subjective when we're talking about professional sports. So um, that's what we're looking at as we're determining the value of these cases. Now, in both of these instances, we don't look at just the wrongful death aspect. 
Okay. Because in both of these instances, there are what we call deeper pockets, right? And it, it sounds callous, but really at the end of the day, if the person has no money who causes the injury or causes the death, it's, there's no value, right? As I explained to clients, we can go to court and we can get, we can go through a jury trial and we can get a piece of paper that says you're owed a million dollars. But what's the value of that piece of paper? If the person who owes you that million dollars has zero ability to pay, well, you could take that piece of paper that the judgment is on, put it in a frame, put it on your wall. And that's going to be the value that that document is ever going to get you. Okay. So kind of very important there to look at. Now, here's where these two are very interesting type cases because as I mentioned, we're dealing with other aspects of law, not just wrongful death. We're looking at what's called an agency relationship. Now, in both of these instances, the person who caused the injuries or who allegedly caused the injuries were employees of another company. Okay. So when we look at that, we go, okay, what was that person doing? And that's what agency relationship is, is that employee-employer relationship. Now, we'll use the term employee, but there are instances that you could extend it to what's called an independent contractor because there are instances where someone is titled an independent contractor, but really, they're an employee. So really important to look at that, and that's where the legal issues really come into play. Uh, we've, we recently had a case where we had to fight tooth and nail to develop that employee-employer relationship because on paper it was an independent contractor and and the um, the employer, basically, okay, for lack of a better term. But through evidence and through some testimony, we were able to bring that in and tie that in and make that independent contractor actually an employee, which now makes that employer responsible for their actions, Okay. And that's the important thing in these two cases. So let's look at the angels real quick and and use that as the example here as we look at this. Now you say, well, why are the angels responsible? Well, let's, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at how Tyler Skaggs was able to get those drugs because Tyler didn't just leave his hotel room, go to the local, local street corner and buy fentanyl and oxycodone. Didn't happen. Okay. Uh, and we know that because the person who went and got those drugs for Tyler Skaggs has said he went and got those drugs for Tyler Skaggs. So that's not really up for interpretation as to how he got them. Now, the person who got them was a director level employee of the Angels. Okay, we're not going to get into his exact title and his name. I, I don't think that's necessarily fair for uh, this podcast and for our purposes. So we're just going to say he was a director level employee. There's several directors. And let's look at some of the things that we would look at to determine what is his relationship with the team, okay? And we're going to dive a little bit into some of the Texas law. Now, we're dealing with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, which would be in California, and I'm here in Florida, so why are we going to even take any second to think about Texas? Well, it happened in Texas. They were on a road trip. They were in Texas. So this action actually falls in and within Texas law, okay? Not California law. So just kind of little nuance there. And as I was reading some of the things with this case, a Texas law really looks at things such as, can that person hire and fire people? And if it does, that goes a long way to showing that that person was an employee. Now, why do we care whether or not somebody was an employee? Because you can make the employer responsible for the actions by the employee 
while that employee is carrying out the business and what we call in furtherance of the business of the employer, okay? Acting within the course and scope of his duties. That's that's what we call it as we're dealing with things. Yeah, a little bit of legalese, but really it is what it says it is. You were, you were working on behalf of that team. And one of the ways in Texas, from what I have read, is that if you can hire and fire people, you you become an agent of that employer, regardless of what it says on paper. And I haven't seen anything to indicate that the angels have said that this director was was not an employee, that they were an independent contractor. But if there was, that surely would be coming out and that would be something that they would be looking at and using as a defense along the way. As we look through this and look into more of who is this person and where they, where do they fall in line? Well, one of the interesting pieces at the time, uh, he didn't show up on the team's website as front office personnel, but in their media guide, shows up as a director level employee. So it really goes to show and it builds that relationship. Now, why is that important? Because you can take the negligence of that person and turn it into negligence on the employer. Okay. Uh, as we talk about the Bayshore Boulevard one, uh, we're going to talk about negligent entrustment, meaning that, that they let him drive the company car. Okay. The concept that we're talking about right now is called respondeat superior. All right. Really fancy name for just for saying that the employer's responsible for the employee. And take it a step further, it is a way to show that the angels had knowledge of this illegal activity. Why? Because one of their employees knew of the illegal activity and if one of their employees knows of the illegal activity it's imputed it's put onto the angels that they know about that illegal activity so that's how that works now why also is that important well major league baseball says if it's a drug of abuse and you know of a drug of abuse happening you have to report it to major league baseball and guess what fentanyl and opiates, all opiates, fentanyl is an opiate, oxycodone is an opiate, hydrocodone is an opiate, uh, Percocet is an opiate as well, Dilaudid, uh, short list of them. I'm, I'm sure there's many more, but those are the most common opiates that we see. Those are considered drugs of abuse by Major League Baseball. In the legal world, the angels are deemed to have knowledge of it. Therefore, the angels actually not only violated the law, but they, they violated the rules of Major League Baseball. So interesting to see if that ever plays out into anything. Now, as reports go, there's potentially five or six other players who had been involved in this in terms of had opiates supplied to them. I believe that those players may have moved on from the Angels organization at this point, um, but not 100% sure. I actually didn't even see uh, what their names were, just that they were with the Angels organization and they have moved on. But what we're talking about here is we're talking about an employee of a team going out, securing illegal drugs. Okay, that's what they are, right? Unless you have a prescription from them, those drugs are illegal. And there is nothing to show that Tyler Skaggs had a prescription is his name for those drugs. So therefore, it, it is illegal. You can't do it. And so we have a team employee going out, securing those drugs, bringing them in and handing them off and we had the worst case scenario happen here, uh, one that we can't turn back from. And you know, there's, there's no recourse. But the only recourse is the family can file a wrongful death action. Now, as of today, I haven't found that there's actually been a wrongful death action filed. Uh, everybody involved seems to have an attorney. 
Okay, the, the director individual who I mentioned has an attorney, the team has an attorney, and the family has an attorney. Uh, but from everything that I've been able to find, the family had an attorney simply to uh, investigate what was going on and how Mr. Skaggs ended up um, passing away from an overdose. So that's what we see in that. Now that's the same as we deal with the pool company here in Tampa is we still have that same concept of respondeat superior. Now, most likely you're going to be able to draw that analysis because, hey, he's driving a company truck with their name on it and it's a weekday. So most likely he's going to work. It was about 11 o'clock. So most likely he's working that day. And driving and is drunk and runs into somebody. But I, I, I think we're going to bring that same parallel back on making the employer responsible or for, yeah, the employer responsible for the acts of the employee. I, I do think that. I, I think they're going to be able to show that this person was an employee because he's driving the company truck, which therefore means he's subjected to company policies and procedure, or at least should be. And if he's not, you could then make the argument that he should have been, and, and that in and of itself is negligent. So you, you sometimes you have all these different areas to go through and different avenues to try to, to show why and how these cases work themselves out. Now, there is an added piece, as I had mentioned earlier, to the pool company case, and that is this. As I mentioned, he was driving the truck, driving a company truck, had the company logo on the side, okay? Most likely was in a company uniform also. It's a company that they have physical stores and everybody in the stores wears uniforms. So uh, it's not a large leap to say that the driver was wearing some sort of uniform in that as well. But as I mentioned, he was driving a company truck. Therefore, that company has entrusted that person with a company truck, with something that the company owns. Okay. Negligent entrustment. That's the next piece of that. That's the next step. Right. Uh, what we would do if we're filing a lawsuit, it's an added count. Okay. A count is you saying this is what this person did wrong, and you do one for each individual piece. So in these cases, we'd have the respondeat superior, which we talked about, the employee employer relationship. That would be one of the counts. Another one of the counts in a case where you have a car involved or a truck involved, you have that negligent entrustment. And what that says is you should have known, company, that this person could have been capable of doing this. You allowed them to use your property and they were in furtherance of your business. They were making you money and they did you wrong. Okay. They did wrong by, by making a negligent act or doing a negligent act. That's what that is. That's how that works. And it takes you from saying, okay, I can only go after the driver because in a normal sense, you're looking at the driver. Okay. Now we do look at the owner of the car. That's the primary piece that we're looking at. And that's where that negligent entrustment piece comes in. But we're also looking at the driver. Okay. But in a company sense, how do we relate that back to the company itself? Negligent entrustment. And actually it does apply to if it's a, a private individual owner and they let somebody borrow their car, but that's lesser of a thing to talk about today because, hey, we're looking at how the employee-employer relationship works and uh, the meaning of all of those pieces. So uh, that's how you go from the driver being responsible to making the company responsible for everything that the driver did. Now look, in both of these cases, might you have what's called punitive damages, you know, and what are punitive damages, right? We have compensatory damages, which are generally what we talk about. Okay. Uh, compensatory damages are 
a way to compensate you, compensate you for your injuries, your pain and suffering, your medical bills, your lost wages. Those are compensatory damages. That's generally what we're talking about when we're talking about torts and negligence and those types of pieces. Now, what are punitive damages? Punitive damages are damages that are meant to punish. Okay. They are meant to punish you for doing something wrong. Okay. And just strictly being negligent isn't enough to make it punitive type damages. Now, could the angels be responsible for punitive damages? Maybe. I think you'd have to uncover a, a long history of knowledge, of actual knowledge. What we talked about before was constructive knowledge, meaning that we just said if one person knew, then the company as a whole should have known. Okay. Uh, actual knowledge is they actually knew. There was somebody at the top actually knew this was going on. This was going on for a long time. Yeah. Not just hey, the the morning that this happened, right before anybody found out. Not just someone calling the the CEO or the president saying, hey, this is what's going on. And the president saying, or the CEO saying, hey, stop doing that. Okay. I don't think you'd be able to, to work punitive damages. And from that perspective, three, four, five days, a month, a year before you know, any extended period of time that someone actually knew, I think you could work in punitive damages. Now, the pool company case, absolutely positively. I think you could see punitive damages in that case, hundred percent, because DUI in the state of Florida generally allows you to allege punitive damages. Now, how, how does that come about? We would file a complaint. We'd work through what's called the discovery process where we're gathering evidence and building a case against the defendant. And then what we do is we find case law and we take our facts and we apply those facts to the case law where other courts have said, yep, that are pun- those are punitive damages. You're allowed to allege punitive damages. Then we have to file a motion to amend our complaint, which is what walks us in the door to start a lawsuit. And we then get to allege punitive damages. Okay. As I said, those are damages that are meant to punish. And I think when you're talking about having an employee who at 11 a.m. is plaster drunk, that's kind of a big deal. And that's something that should be looked at and considered uh, as we're looking at different things. And that's probably why punitive damages should show up. Now, look, I, I think in cases that are like both of these, I don't think, and look, this is just my own personal opinion. I don't think that they will ever see the light of day of a courtroom. Why? Because I think that these are the types of things that are so egregious and have such an ability to grab a headline that any insurance company, any any defendant company is going to want to say, we want to settle this thing. And oh, by the way, we also want a confidentiality agreement. We don't want anybody knowing what's going on in this, how much money we paid. Uh, and generally speaking, in those agreements, the settlement agreements, there'll be a line that says, we're not saying we're responsible. We're just saying that it's in our best interest to pay you and move on with our lives. And I think you might most likely would see something along those lines in both of those cases. I mean, it it just makes sense, right? Because they're so egregious. The more egregious the case is, the more sense it makes for a defendant to resolve it. It just does. I mean, as a plaintiff's attorney, I'd love to say, hey, every single case should go to trial. Absolutely. Let's do it. But at the same time, on the defense side, you really got to be saying on ones like these, how many zeros do we need to write in the check to get it 
to get it resolved because, hey, these are just, these are bad. These are really, really bad scenarios. These are really bad for us, bad from a press perspective, bad from really any legitimate perspective that you can think of. I can't really think of a great defense on either one of these cases to get out of it. So, you know, in that sense, that's what we'd be looking at. I would expect, and if the Skaggs family ever did file a suit, that it would most likely get resolved via settlement. And same thing in our Bayshore Boulevard in Tampa example. I mean, pure probability is on our side too. About 2% of any case actually ever goes to trial. And I suspect that that number has gone down. Uh, and during the coronavirus time, that number's most likely gone down even more. So 98% of the time, we would see cases resolve outside of an actual trial. And you know, the, the worse it is for a defendant, I think, the more you see them willing to resolve uh, out of out of court. So I think the probabilities are high on that. So that is what wrongful death looks like, at least when we're talking about when we add it in with a, the employee-employer relationship and how the whole puzzle comes together and what the analysis looks like. As always, I do encourage you to reach out to me and uh, always open to listener questions and listener feedback. So please reach out to me and let's see... Uh, what you guys think of the show check us out on instagram facebook and twitter at the law father and that is the show for today law father out this is a landry football quick fix on radio influence the draft process when you're dealing with character question mark you're not Excuse me. When you're dealing with evaluation of players, there is thorough background checks on all these players. Anybody that you'd even consider signing as an undrafted free agent or better drafting, you're going to get thorough background checks. Okay. Yes, you have boots on the ground with scouts that try to unearth information about this or that. But in the league, league team officials employ former FBI type people that have access to information that other people don't have. And there was some stuff that was unearthed about Darius. To what degree exactly what it was, don't know. It was something that needed to be investigated. Well, it was investigated to the point where teams were made aware of it and everybody had to assess the risk factor of taking him. Some were a little bit more concerned about it than others. Some didn't have them on their board or if they were going to mitigate the risk would have only considered taking them much later. The Redskins thought good value in the second round because a player they had as a first round grady player is now available in the second round and they did not think it was as big of an issue. Their intel said that, well, we've heard that, but we don't know that it's anything really grave. So, we can mitigate our risk of the second round. Well, now obviously, as I've mentioned, they've released him. Different administration and organization. Now, Ron Rivera is running it. But the intel from Washington was a little different than some others. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.